following is a recording of a sermon given at All Saints Lutheran Church in Ottawa, Canada. For additional messages and more information, visit allsaintslutheran.ca. As you're probably aware, I don't normally read my sermons, but I am this time. Why? Don't really know. This is just how it ended up happening this week. My last two sermon series, beginning with 1 John, followed by the end times, greatly challenged me to consider my and our response to what God has done for us in Jesus. With regard to 1 John, I was surprised how cut and dry, and in a sense harsh, the sharp distinction John was making between the true believer and the fake. True believers, if I understand John correctly, are not only called to believe in the authentic, actual Jesus, but true faith in the true Messiah must be reflected in how we live, specifically by loving our brothers and sisters in the faith and living lives contrary to the ungodly ways of the world. From there, we went on to my End Time series where I tried to show that ever since the coming of Jesus, the world has been in a cosmic battle with which Jesus' followers are called to engage. We are to be diligent in how we follow Jesus as partners in his mission. The current series, which I've entitled Following Jesus, is designed to explore what following Jesus is all about. The past two weeks, we've looked at two related concepts, the call to follow Jesus and what it means to walk with God. We have seen, hopefully, how true faith includes a strong relational dynamic as we learn to be like our Lord in every way. I entitled today's third installment of this Following Jesus series, The Cost. Today we commemorated what it cost Jesus so we could follow him. He paid the ultimate price on our behalf. Though he himself did no wrong, he took upon himself our sins that we might be forgiven and receive eternal life. As was prophesied by Isaiah in chapter 53, verses 5 through 6, that he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray, we have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. If this is what he's done for us, what should our response be apart from deep gratitude? Is not all we have received from him pure gift? As we read in Ephesians 2, verses 8 through 10, for by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It's the gift of God, not as a result of works that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. If the gift is free, then why would Jesus encourage us to count the cost, as was read for us earlier? We're going to look at that passage again, Luke 14, 25 to 33. Now great crowds accompanied him, and he turned to, and said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, He cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you, desiring to build a tower, does not first 
sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it. Otherwise, when he's laid a foundation, he's not able to finish, all will see it, all who see it will begin to mock him, saying, this man began to build and was not able to finish. You can hear a bit of a, in there. Or what king going out to encounter another king in war will not sit down first and deliberate whether he's able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000? And if not, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So therefore, any of, any of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. This passage has been used to encourage people to think seriously about what following Jesus will likely mean for their lives. I've heard a story, can't say for sure that it's true, a story from the former Soviet Union when being public about one's faith was basically illegal. This man, when speaking with others who were interested in believing in Jesus, before they would commit themselves to the Lord, this man would take them to the zoo to the lion's cage and say, the early Christians were thrown to those things. Do you still want to believe? The Luke passage seems to suggest that the Lord is saying something similar. Just like a good builder is careful to make sure his plans will be successful before starting a new project, and a wise ruler works out a a well-thought-out strategy before engaging an enemy nation, then, wait a second, The Lord doesn't say you need to really consider the implications of following me before doing so. There's actually nothing in that passage about grappling with what might happen to would-be followers. What he does say, in verse 33, So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. He doesn't speak about the builders and the rulers' considerations in order that we might think through the implications of following him. This is not his version of my see the lion story. The counting of the cost that Jesus refers to is not our cost of following him. It's, It's not as if he's saying like, really? They think it over. Do you really think this is worth it? Do you think it's going to be okay? Do you think it's going to go okay? If you believe in me, do you think it's going to be successful? You better think about it first. That's not what Jesus is saying in that passage. What he's saying is that God considered the cost of his mission through Jesus, just like the builder and the ruler, and he has determined that it would be successful. Otherwise, Jesus wouldn't be doing it. The mission of God through Jesus is referred earlier about God's grand plan. He knows what he's doing. And to think that we have been invited to be part of this plan, that no matter how it might look, how it's going, is going to be successful. So, the cost has been counted by God. And he has determined that it's worth our giving up anything and everything for. This idea that we need to give up everything in order to follow Jesus has bothered me through the years due to how I came to know the Lord. 
Many of you know my story of coming to faith a few days before my 19th birthday. I was told that if I said a prayer, a prayer asking God to forgive my sins and invite Jesus into my life, I'd be happy for the rest of my life, as well as live forever in heaven. Given that I was so miserable with daily uncontrollable panic attacks, general fear of death, and so little to live for, this was a most intriguing offer of which I would conclude I had everything to gain and nothing to lose. Yet even with such an unbalanced offer, a happy life for miserable me, I knew right away that as a Jewish young person, having anything to do with Jesus would cost me. Without fully grasping what believing in Jesus would actually entail, I knew that I would most likely immediately experience negative reactions and rejection. If I believe like you, I asked the person telling me about Jesus for the first time that day, I might lose some friends, most of whom were also Jewish. If that's the case, he said, then they, they never were your friends in the first place. Makes sense, I thought to myself. What if the girl I'm interested in, also Jewish, doesn't want to go out with me? Then, he said, she's not the one for you. Also made sense, I thought. So with the little I knew of what was being proposed, I knew that there would be a cost. Yet, I deemed that cost worth it. To be fair, I was given the offer of happiness and eternal life on a try-it-and-see basis, which I learned is not really the way to share the gospel. On the other hand, isn't following Jesus to some extent always try-it-and-see? The Jesus follower isn't trapped. I was told that day that God would never make me do anything I didn't want to. I mean, not that I would always be able to do whatever I felt like doing, but rather no one was going to force me against my will to fulfill some religious or organizational obligations. I was not being asked to join a manipulative, oppressive cult, which my mother thought that that's what was happening. She thought that until she saw the drastic positive change in my life and three months later also came to know the Lord. Anyway, it's not that. Even today, you're not stuck. One of the most intriguing things about what was offered to me that day was that I was being invited to personally engage God by reaching out to him through Jesus. I was told that if I said that prayer, I would see signs. This was his way of saying that this wasn't about simply adopting a new frame of mind or attitude or joining a religious club, but rather, if I reached out to God, God would show himself real to me. So, either this was real or it was not. As I said, I concluded that I had everything to gain and nothing to lose. Now, if you think about it, though, that's an expression saying, whatever I might lose, it would be worth it for the incomparable benefits I would receive. I not yet heard Jesus' parables that speak about this, about the kingdom of heaven being worth more than anything, from Matthew 13, verses 44 through 46, that read, The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, 
who on finding one pearl of great value went and sold all that he had and bought it. These two parables illustrate two types of people who encounter the kingdom of heaven. The second is the searcher. That wasn't me. Perhaps it should have been, given how miserable I was. I am actually like the first person going about his life who happens upon the greatest treasure in the world and is willing to give up everything for it. Again, at that time, I didn't know what I'd be giving up. I was so desperate. What I did know was that whatever I did have wasn't working for me. Therefore, anything would have been worth what I was being offered, if it was true, of course. In the next few weeks, God did indeed make himself real to me, and as a result, I was beginning to change. It wasn't long before my whole outlook on life was being transformed. The anxiety lifted, the depression gone, hope was rising in my heart. I had a reason for living. At the same time, my new faith and my great excitement to tell anyone and everyone about it had two results. The first result, lots of my friends were intrigued. Some even also said the prayer. A few stuck with it. The second result, however, was that others weren't so pleased. The girl hung up on me. She wasn't the one, obviously. And I lost some friends. Some people tried to shame me. Soon I would learn from the Bible and life experience that there would be pushback. But in those early years, it hardly mattered. I was going to say didn't matter, but that would be an overstatement. The negativity of people's unpleasant reactions would hardly matter, given all that I had received. And one of the, the things I remembered while I was preparing this was the time um, I was attending after I came to the Lord, I started CJEP, Community College in Montreal. Um, no, take that back. I went into my second year of, of CJEP, and I was t- because of this new faith I had, I began to take these religion courses because I was exploring uh, the faith and the Bible and all the rest. But taking religion courses at a community college in Montreal really isn't the best. I wouldn't actually prescribe that to anyone because they were a challenge. Anyway, I had this professor who was an ordained minister, and I was really disturbed by some of the things that he was saying. And after class, uh, one day, everybody was gone, and um, I started to ask him some questions privately. And the way he's answering me, and I finally said to him something like, have you, now I'm 19 years old, I'm a kid, I'm talking to this, this adult professor, I don't know if he's Dr. So-and-so, but it'd be better for the story to say that he was Dr. So-and-so. And and so we're talking. I finally said to him, have you ever had a personal encounter with Jesus? And he looked at me and he said, I'm a kid, right? I know what you're getting at. And he walked out of the room, leaving me standing there. There's worse kinds of persecution, but I don't know, that really just weird but you know when you follow the lord life gets really weird that's okay so the cost what cost i'd been desperately lost and god rescued me 
Still, in my naivety, I didn't understand what I was in for. I remember being at a Bible study my first year as a believer, one of several I attended each week at that time. And one of the other attendees made a comment that life as a believer got harder, not easier, as time went by. Immature, know-it-all me took him on. I said, no, it gets easier because of my great transformation I was experiencing. I thought my life was only going to get better and better. And maybe it has. Well, actually, it really has. But I was yet to understand the sometimes painful processes God uses to bring that about. My misunderstanding of the gospel growth process in those early years doesn't change the fact that that's the way it is with God in us. The process of becoming more and more like Jesus is painful by design. And this is what God has been doing in me these past over 45 years of my life. I didn't always understand what was going on. Yet, as the scripture says in Hebrews 12, verse 11, for the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Through the years, I've been shamed, wrongly blamed, ignored, yelled at, and rejected. And that's the way I'm talking about it isn't always the way I've felt about it. Funny, though, no matter how painful any of this was, I've never thought of it as cost. It was just the way things were. Sometimes it's a direct reaction to my following the Lord, other times the normal challenges of life. But whatever it was, how can I compare my hardships to all the Lord has done for me? And that's in this life. Paul writes in Romans 8, 18, For I, Paul, consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Paul discovered the treasure, and it was worth everything, if only we took the time to think about it. Contrary to my original understanding, the gospel isn't simply about believing in Jesus if it's, as if it's nothing more than a personal transaction between me and God. Yet somehow, I knew fairly early on that believing in Jesus affected every area of life. The gospel is the proclamation of Jesus as king, of which his role as our personal savior is an essential part. This is why when Jesus spoke of what he was calling people to, he would often refer to it as the kingdom of heaven or God. And this occurs 92 times in the Gospels in the book of Acts. His invitation to us to be part of his kingdom is not simply an offer of a ticket to heaven, but rather the call to enter into, now listen, we are called into the realm of God's rulership over all of life, beginning now and culminating in our eventual and eternal participation in the new heavens and the new earth. I better say that again. We have been called into the realm of God's rulership over all of life, beginning now and culminating in our eventual and eternal participation in the new heavens and the new earth. The coming of Jesus marked the beginning of God's renewal mission, a mission that every believer in Jesus is a part of. Giving us an opportunity to follow Jesus on his mission cost him dearly. Herod sought to murder him when he was a young child under two years of age. As soon as it was time for him to go public, 
He endured 40 days of devilish testing in the wilderness. The people of his hometown of Nazareth reacted to one of his earliest sermons by attempting to push him off a cliff. His family thought he was mentally unstable. His closest friends misunderstood him much of the time and abandoned him in his hour of greatest need. Every religious and political authoritative body rejected him and conspired to execute him despite his innocence. The kindest, wisest, most compassionate, godly man who ever lived set just about everyone on edge as he threatened the oppressive dark powers which controlled the masses. Those powers thought that by his death they would retain their authority over God's creation. Were they wrong? Instead, God's justice prevailed. By his receiving Jesus' death as the full payment for sin, he conquered sin's power by raising him from the dead. Jesus counted the cost, and it was worth it. Not just for him, but also for us. As the writer of the book of Hebrews writes, chapter 12, the middle of verse 1 through verse 3, let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. He endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. Can't remember the time um, I was sitting, I was at this church, I believe I was sharing a little bit about the mission I was working with. This was in Vancouver. It was in the 1980s. It was a while ago. And um, I was sitting, I think, in the second row. I can't believe I did this. I sort of can, I can't. And um, the, the pastor was preaching, and he made this comment that... Jesus, Jesus suffered. You know, as I'm telling this story, I don't think this is the part where I shook my head. That's, that's another part. We'll just stick with what the pastor said. Forget the part where I shook my head, which I probably shouldn't have done. Anyway, my passion for the word of God and God's truth has gotten me in trouble a lot through the years. And I only regret that sometimes my delivery has been not as good as it should be. Not my commitment to the word of God. But back to the story. He made the comment, and I think we're celebrating communion too. That's it. And he said, Jesus suffered so that we wouldn't have to. And again, maybe I've shared this before, but I'm, obviously I'm sharing it again. I thought, really? Now, I think he was saying, he suffered a certain kind of suffering, the bearing of the world's sin on our behalf, so that we would not have to endure eternal punishment if we truly believe in him. That's true. 
But to say to a group of believers, Jesus suffered, said we wouldn't have to, flies in the face of much of what was read in the scripture this morning. Actually, Jesus suffered so that we too can suffer. And not just suffer for its own sake, but in the same way that Jesus confronted the powers of darkness and experienced the pushback of evil and overcame. So we join him in that mission. Obviously, whatever Jesus accomplished on the cross and his resurrection, he didn't rid the world of all the bad stuff. That's still in process. It's coming. But now we get to follow after him, and we experience similar pushback than what he experienced. And because he overcame the powers of darkness in his day, so we, when we follow him, because of what he's done for us and by the power of the Holy Spirit, we also can overcome the powers of darkness. We needn't, we mustn't crumble under ungodly influences, be they temptation, be they be immorality, be they be various forms of oppression. We are the followers of King Jesus, and we have been set free to walk in the light and be his light to enable others to be set free by his power. Sadly, the world continues to be agitated by that light. And so just like, you know, Jesus didn't go out of his way to get himself in trouble. The good life he lived in following the will of God resulted in great trouble. He knew that would happen. Just like we shouldn't fool ourselves. As we live lives of goodness and light and walk in God's will, people will be agitated and we will face what I've been calling pushback. But by the grace and power of God, not only can we overcome those challenges, if we are true to God in the midst of them, God will use us to set others free from darkness and sin and oppression and enjoy the benefits of being God's children, living and serving in his kingdom, and being part of God's incomparably wonderful great eternity. Everything to gain and nothing to lose. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you. We thank you for what you have done for us in your Son. 
Lord, I thank you for how you turned the lights on in my own life when I wasn't expecting it. I had no idea what I was going to encounter that day when I got up that morning. But you and your grace and your love sought me out and drew me to yourself. And I thank you that through all the challenges, the difficulties of these years, you have been so gracious. And you have rescued me again and again and again. I owe everything to you. Lord, I wonder how many of us that name the name of your son have not really and truly received this grace. Lord, open our eyes to see the futility of what this world has to offer. Give us the courage to be willing to give up everything for you. Not out of a sense of family or religious obligation, but because of the reality of who you are and what you've done. Help each one of us to experience you afresh. Lord, would you help us to bring our our doubts, our questions, our concerns to you. Thank you that you can handle our objections, our struggles, our fears. As you long to wrap your loving arms around us and help us even when we face the most difficult of challenges, when we find ourselves suffering in this life, at the same time that there's a comfort from heaven that you wish to impart to us. Draw us to a place of your peace in the midst of the reality of who you really are. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening. For additional messages and more information, please visit us on the web at allsaintslutheran.ca Thank you.